good to be back. Raise your hand if you need a lesson. We've got uh, the Cravers gone, so we're, we're um, doing lessons uh, handout otherwise. Uh, butlers down here, the Mickeys, uh, any number. The, the Ways are handling double duty this morning. Um, <clears throat> while they're doing that, uh, it's good to be back. Am I? Yeah, I'm okay. Uh, it's been uh, uh, two weeks that uh, have been wonderful for the class and wonderful for the church, but I've missed my dose of church history and uh, missed my, uh, uh, whoops, my, y'all just got a preview if you were watching the screen. That could save like five minutes off class time. Um, I want to underscore uh, the, the blessing of this trip. Think about uh, uh, collecting money or setting aside money or asking for money for birthdays, anniversaries, whatever you may have, and start putting your money aside. This trip will be a tremendous blessing for the people who go. And, and some of the fun uh, of this, uh, we will be reaching before the trip. Uh, you normally would think about a Holy Land trip and you'd think, oh, this is great. I want to see the biblical sites. But if you're like me, I'm the cynical trial lawyer who wants to always cross-examine uh, poor Debbie can't even get the date out without me. Are you sure it was May 18th? Because it was two days ago. Uh, you know, so I sit there and someone says to me, this was the upper room. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, right. Like, how do they know it's the upper room, you know, where it really happened? Um, uh, some of that we find through church history. And for example, next week, God willing, we'll be dealing with Constantine. And, and uh, once Constantine made... Christianity, the religion of the state, all of a sudden Jerusalem got barraged by people who were wanting to go back. And, and we actually have a list of who had been the, the bishop and the eldership of the Jerusalem church up through that time in history. And so they went back and they said, we want to see the sites. And a lot of these sites that we affiliate like the upper room today um, were identified as such and recorded for us historically in the early 300s. Uh, by people who had a line of succession back to the apostolic church itself. So it's, it's, there's some reliability there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it didn't have like a plaque that's been there since 33 AD, you know. But uh, it's still got some reliability and there's, it's uh, an incredible opportunity that we've got. So be praying about it and see if it's something that works for you. This morning, I want to do a class that I wish I had done before we had our little hiatus. And the reason why is because it really fits in the flow of what we've already been studying. Whereas next week, we kind of launch into the 300s in a brand new way. Uh, I'm excited about next week. I urge you to come. I know it's going to be Memorial Day weekend, and um, we were, everybody has things. It's a unique opportunity to have a three-day weekend, and I don't want to take away from your family opportunities. But if you're around, I promise you I will work extra hard to make class worth coming to next Sunday. Um, with Constantine, we, we kind of have hit a threshold where we've got a whole bunch of brand new stuff we've got to deal with. Because once Constantine makes, in essence, the, the Roman religion, Christianity, things radically change for the church. Uh, you've now got the, the chief politician uh, speaking for Christianity. You've got all of the Roman uh, architects who previously had been told, hey, build a temple to Zeus or something like that. 
Now all of a sudden those guys are being told, oh no, 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 now we're going to call it a church instead, so build it as a church. So they got to take all that architecture know-how and turn it into building churches. Now all of a sudden, you know, one of the problems we've got with Scripture is, is uh, I say problems, it's, it's not an insurmountable problem, but one of the difficulties of scholars is trying to figure out what the original autographed versions looked like, right? Because we don't actually have the signed copy of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We don't actually have the signed copy of Luke's, Luke and Acts. We've got fragments and portions, but the real good copies we've got date from the time of Constantine. Because prior to Constantine, during these bouts of religious persecutions and martyrdoms that we've talked about, all of the books and writings would be seized that could be found and would be burned. Because just as it was illegal to practice the faith of Christianity, it was illegal to have the scriptures and the writings. And so that's why up until the time of Constantine, what we've got are fragments and pieces of manuscripts, but we don't have a total New Testament and Old Testament, for example. And we've got that once we get to Constantine because the religion was all of a sudden uh, uh, accepted. So lots of things change. And it's going to be a lot of fun to deal with those things. Unfortunately, we didn't get this last class in. And I just don't think we're doing fairness to the literacy part if we skip this class. So take a deep breath. Let's go back and use this as an opportunity from God to kind of review a little bit of where we've been and uh, add the last little touches that we need to before we get to Constantine. Our review starts with looking at the roots of the church. The roots of the church are Jewish, plain and simple. The roots of the church are Jewish. Why do I say that? Well, look at what we have that goes into this factor. Jesus' lineage, what was he? He's Jewish, right? Okay, how about his ministry? Jews. He ministered to Jews. Oh, one time he, he got a little Gentile thing going there, but, but that was when he, he just had mercy on the Gentile because he made it very clear, I've been sent to the Jews. And his ministry was in... Uh, 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 Debbie, how, how, how far a drive is it from Jerusalem to cover everywhere Jesus went? You can do it within 30 to 45 minutes. Okay? I mean, this, this, he wasn't a world traveler. His ministry was in the Jewish Judea. Okay? It, was in, it was in the Jewish lands. That, that's where he lived. That was his location. Um, but for his little jaunts through Samaria, that's the only way he, he lived. And Samaria itself was really part of the Jewish promised land. Um, not only that, but think about his followers. How many of the apostles were non-Jewish? Zero, right? Okay, so you got a Jewish guy, lives in a Jewish land, only stays in his Jewish land. He's got a ministry to Jews. He's followed by his apostles who are Jewish. And then he's got a church. The church gets established. 3,000 are baptized the first day. And guess what? They're all Jewish. Okay? So you got your first church. Now, not only that, but the scriptures of that church are what we call the Old Testament. So the church's first scriptures are Jewish. You see how the church is Jewish, right? The church's roots are Jewish. 
Now, Jesus said before he ascended, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Okay. Now, if you look at that, you got to figure a lot of those Jews were recognizing that there's the dispersion. The Jews have been already sent to every nation. And I think it's pretty clear from the book of Acts that the apostles themselves were thinking Jesus must mean go to all the Jews in all the nations. The apostles were not just really raring to go out there and deal with Gentiles. In fact, apostles, the Jews didn't even like to interface with Gentiles. So you got a lot of Jews, and it's a Jewish religion, and it looks like a renewal movement within Judaism, and I don't think the apostles knew until God revealed it to them. In fact, God has to come to Peter in a dream before Peter will go to Cornelius for the first Gentile conversion in Acts 8, something like that. Ten, Ten. thank you. You've got, you've got a strong Jewish foundation to the church. Now, this is my effort at cracking the Jewish foundation. Okay? That's the crack. The crack starts when Peter converts Cornelius and his household. But it's just a sliver of a crack because by and large the church is still Jewish. The crack gets a little bit bigger. Who makes it bigger? Paul. Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. You got 12 of them to the Jews. You got one of them to the Gentiles. Paul becomes what he calls the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's the perfect guy to take this Jewish faith, to take this Jewish message from this Jewish Messiah, which was targeted for the whole world, and to take it from its Jewish roots and bridge it over and start dealing with the Greeks, the Gentiles. Why is Paul the perfect guy? Uh, I don't think Paul was just right place, right time. It's more than that. It's not coincidence. If there is one message I could put in the heart of my children, if there is one message I could put in your heart right now, it's that none of us are a coincidence and an accident. There's a young lady right there I'm looking at. You're not a coincidence. Yeah, you. I'm sorry. You don't have to look. You don't have to tell anybody I'm looking at you. You are not a coincidence or an accident. You're just not. You are who you are because of what God has done and what God wants to do for you. See, God's got a road set out for each one of us. Oh, there are a bunch of us that just don't even want to see it. We want to ignore it. But God's got it set out. Paul was the perfect guy, not because he was lucky. It wasn't his lottery number. Paul was made by God for his mission. Look at it. Look at his family. Let's consider him from the Jewish perspective first. He is, according to what he said in, the Hebrew, uh, in Philippians, he said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Do you know what that meant? That meant he could trace his Jewish lineage back through captivity after captivity all the way back. He still had a valid lineage that he could check all the way through. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He spoke Hebrew. He wrote Hebrew. He read Hebrew. You're thinking, well, of course, he's Jewish. No, most Jews didn't at that time. Aramaic was the normal language for the Jews. But he was, he was of a Jewish lineage. He's trained in Judaism. 
He studies at the feet of Gamaliel, who even today is recognized by Judaism as one of their two top rabbis at that time. We've got his sayings still with us today. Gamaliel didn't just take any student. It wasn't a a thing where, okay, you live within uh, three miles of this part of Jerusalem, then you go to Gamaliel's school. Okay? Oh, what school zone are you in? I'm in the Gamaliel Independent School District. G-I-S-D. Gisid for short. Wasn't that at all. Very few students. Very selective. Very hard to get into. Not only that, but we know that Paul is a Pharisee. Beyond a Pharisee, Paul's a leader within the Pharisaical circles. He's one of the key dog Pharisees. Paul's got Judaism. When someone wants to challenge him on his Judaism, he says, bring it on. Because I'll out-Jew any of you. He says, "I I am a Jew of Jews of Jews of Jews. He says, not only that, but you want to measure my life and how I live by the Jewish law? Bring it on. Because I'll out Jewish law any of you. He says, I got the Judaism. Circumcised on the right day. I mean, the whole kit and caboodle from cradle to grave. So he's got that. Okay? Now look at him from the other side of the bridge, though. He was born in Tarsus. No mean city, he says. By that, it does not mean that there weren't people there who were tough. It means uh, not an average city, not your run-of-the-mill city. Okay? And Tarsus wasn't. Tarsus was a coastal town in modern Turkey whose principal export were scholars, school teachers. Tarsus had the major university for teaching people how to be a teacher. And that's where Saul was from. And the fact that Saul, uh, Paul, same thing, he's got a Gentile name and a Hebrew name. Okay? It's not, gee, his name was Saul, and after he became a Christian on the road to Damascus, he thought he needed a new name, so he got one that rhymed. Okay? That's not it. Okay? He had four names, but he had his Hebrew name, which was Saul, and he also had his Gentile name, his Roman name, which was Paulos, Paul. Just when he's out there being the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, he goes by his Gentile name. Doesn't go by his Hebrew name. So Paul, Saul, he's, he's from Tarsus. And not only from Tarsus, he's a Roman citizen. And he didn't buy his Roman citizenship. He was born with it, which means that his parents or his grandparents are somewhere, somewhere back. Someone did something right for some Roman general and they got it given to him. And he's born a Roman citizen at a time where most people are not Roman citizens. Roman citizenship conferred incredible privileges. And it was very unusual for people to have it. One out of ten didn't have Roman citizenship. So Paul's a Roman citizen. Not only is he a Roman citizen, but we know he's got training and schooling from a Greek philosophical mentality. When Paul's in Athens speaking to the Epicureans and the Stoics, he gets called up on the Areopagus, which is this little uh, big old, actually it's a big old rock it looks like, down from the Parthenon. And he gets called up there and he starts quoting Greek poets. Okay? The guy had Greek training out the wazoo. 
he spoke and wrote very well in Greek. So here you've got this guy who's got the Jewishness to the marrow of his bones who's also fully Greek. What a perfect way for God to start bringing out the church beyond just its Jewish roots. Paul's the guy. Look at the map. Okay? We got uh, Jerusalem right here. We got Galilee right there. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how well this is going to work. Let's take just a second and boot this up a little bit higher. Because um, we're going to need it higher in a minute. Oh, that's just useless. Okay, um, while I'm doing this, and y'all are getting... Uh, okay, what we got to do is we got to figure out how to get... Here. That's better. Okay, thank you. Sorry, y'all. I don't have Philip here, so I'm kind of like doing this myself, which is kind of scary. Um, do you know what Paul does? He invents the mission trip. Think about it. Read history. Nobody was really a missionary before Paul. You don't have other cultures and societies doing mission work. Oh, sometimes they might sort of say that they're sort of missionaries, but what it really is is an excuse for their military to go conquer someone and impose a religion on them. But there's no one gratuitously going out by themselves trying to evangelize. Paul's the one who starts it. He's our first missionary. Paul does it, and it's really interesting how he does it. He does it starting from this little town called Antioch, which had a large Jewish population. We know people from Antioch were there in Pentecost. We know the church is already there in Antioch. And so Jerusalem down here, Paul's up in Antioch, and Paul and some of his brethren go out on a mission trip. And the first thing they do is they go to this part called Galatia. It's uh, uh, the southern part of Turkey very close to his home of Tarsus. And he goes there and he goes to a number of different towns and he basically goes to the synagogues. See, now he's still going to the synagogues, the Jewish place of worship, to do his conversions. He goes to the synagogues and he converts, but he's not only converting the Jews, he's converting the Gentiles who go to the synagogue. So he starts this. Well, after that first mission trip, it goes so well, he goes back, covers those same churches, but this time expands it and goes a little bit further. Goes all the way up into Ephesus, goes into Macedonia, which is a little north of Greece, and goes down to Greece, goes down into Athens, goes over to Corinth, and he picks up a bunch of Greece. It's the word. <laughs> it's the second missionary trip. We know, sorry, it's been a couple weeks. Um, not only does he do that, look, he picks up a third missionary trip. In essence, he goes to Rome. And we have reason to believe, based upon reading some uh, Timothy and Titus and some writings after his Roman imprisonment, that he picks up the island of Crete, that he uh, goes in and, and does some more in western Greece. And so he does that. Now, if we go to church history outside of the Bible, we find out before he dies that he went to the furthest west reaches. He did what he had said he wanted to do in Scripture. He finally evangelizes as far as Spain. That's Paul taking the gospel out. Now, how, the churches, though, are still predominantly Jewish. 
Not totally. You can see the fracture starting to take place a little bit further. If you go back and you want to look at our biblical literacy lessons, those of you who were not in here, go grab them. First, we had a whole section on this that I've covered now in five minutes, but we also had a section, look at the letter to the Romans. When Paul wrote the letter to the Roman church, the Roman church most likely started by Jews who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost. We don't know the roots beyond that. But we know that in the Roman church, there are Jews and Gentiles, and that there comes a time around 50 A.D. when the Caesar kicks out the Jews of Rome, kicks the Jews out of Rome. That would include the Christian Jews. And then for the first time in history, the Gentiles are in charge of a church. Okay. And then a couple years later, the Romans get to come back, I mean, the, the Jews get to come back into Rome. And don't you just know what happened? Okay. okay, we're back. You guys did real good for the two years we were gone. Um, I'll be taking back over the budget. I'll be taking back over the adult education ministry. Uh, uh, needless to say, I'll be preaching. Uh, I'll be taking over, you know, the visitation. We really appreciate the job you Gentiles did while we were gone. And that's the reason Paul wrote the letter to the Roman church. See, he wrote the Roman letter to address those issues within the church and to say, time out. Let's make it real clear on how everybody stands before God. Gentiles, you're going to hell on your own. Jews, you're going to hell on your own too. In fact, everybody's going to hell on their own. But for a righteousness, Romans 3.21, the most important but verse in the Bible, but for a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, So there's no difference between the, Jew, uh, the Gentiles and the Jews in God's mind and in God's church. It's not a question of whose it is. It's, Paul doesn't see it as a Jewish institution. He doesn't see it as a Gentile institution. He sees it as God's institution. It's the body of Christ. And so, uh, you know, Paul, but what you see here is, is the fracture. Now, the fracture's not totally finished with Paul. The fracture between Judaism and Christianity, really, really, the gulf is, is done by something you'll see if you go on the trip. That's a picture of Masada. We're going there. That's like day six. No, it's not day six. But it's pretty close, and it's in there because I heard it. Ah, day four, October 4th, Masada. There you are. What was Masada other than a horrible TV series movie? In 68, the Jews in Israel rebelled against the Roman Empire. And they decided they could set up their own kingdom. And we talked about this in an earlier church history literacy lesson, so I won't bore you too much. This is a little refresher. The Jews rebel against Rome. Titus comes in and he basically wipes out the Jews. And the last refuge of them go up to Masada and he wipes them out. Now the church is Jewish in Jerusalem at this time. So what happened to the Christians? Well, they did not stay and fight with the Jews. The early church Christians, without exception in my understanding, based on my reading, were pacifists. They would not fight a military. In fact, one of the biggest issues with an early church 
writer in particular was whether or not Christians could even serve in the military. Okay. Because, you know, Peter pulled out his sword and tried to lop off the ear and more, but Jesus said, put the sword up. Jesus was, did not fight the Romans, even though he had the resources and the wherewithal to, to win his. He could have taken over the world physically if he'd wanted to. He certainly was tempted to by Satan. But that's not the route that Jesus taught, and it's not the route that Jesus went. And so the church doesn't stay and fight with the rest of the Jews. The church bails. Eusebius tells us they went to Pella, something like Pella, Paia. Paia is something you eat, isn't it? It's Pella. It must be Pella. Um, but but the, the, the Jews get wiped out. And those Jews that are left have to now put together Judaism. Judaism used to be a temple-centered worship. The time of Christ it was, right? They go to the temple, they go to the temple, they go to the temple. Well, that's been wiped out. And the, the temple worship and the high priest, it's gone. So the Jews reconvene at Jamnia or Yamnia, and when the Jews reconvene there, they start trying to put their religion back together and figure out how they're going to practice without the temple in Jerusalem and their priest system. And so they restructure things where they, they, they basically work around rabbis and synagogues instead. All right? They, don't, they quit sacrificing. Why don't Jews sacrifice today? Temple's been destroyed. You only sacrifice at the temple. So they quit sacrificing. They rewrite, in essence, the, the core of what it means to be a Jew in about 70 to 90 A.D. over that time period. And as they rewrite it, they've got 18 benedictions, 18 prayers they offer. One of them they specifically rewrite and they boot the Christians out. They say, if you're a follower of, of, of Jesus Christ, bam, you can't be at our synagogues anymore. You can't come in and preach Jesus as the Messiah. You've got nothing to do with us and we've got nothing to do with you. And once that happened, it radically changed the inflow of people into the church. Because before that, the inflow of people into the church is predominantly Jewish. You know, you've got Paul, who's maybe the biggest intellectual giant in Judaistic history, who's an inflow into the church. You've got intellectual giants and leaders inflowing. But after that, you don't. Your next generation of the church is decidedly Gentile and Greek. And the Gentiles and the Greeks come at it totally different than the Jews do. They're not steeped in the Old Testament traditions. They don't know what it is to go to Passover. They don't know what it is to experience the law. They don't know the Old Testament prophets. They don't know the promise of a Messiah that they spent their lives waiting for and that their ancestors have. They don't know what it means to leave an empty seat at the table, lest Messiah be here next year or come this time because we want it for Him. They don't know any of this stuff. They don't have the history of being God's chosen people. And you've got this influx of Gentiles, and what the Gentiles have, especially the leaders and the more thought-progressive intellectuals, is they've got a, a, a more of a Greek mentality because Greek was the education system. Even in Rome, Rome had conquered the world, not Greece, but even in Rome... Tutors and teachers were Greek slaves, typically. They'd bring them over from Greece as Greek slaves and they would teach the Romans. Because Greek was, those were the, those were the thinkers, those were the people. Now, not only that, but you don't have the morality of the Israelis. 
you got like toga parties. I don't know who those people are. If you're visiting today, we have a friendship room. And uh, <laughs> these new church leaders bring new questions and new ways of thinking. And they bring a different flavor on things. Let's look at the concerns. The Jewish concern. Is this the Jewish side? Yeah. The Jewish concern historically, how do I live to please God? I want to keep the law. What is the law? You know, their big question with Jesus is, okay, which one of the commandments is the greatest? Okay. Or, uh, do you think it's okay to do this and not do that? That's their question. Live to please God. Live to please God. That's the question for the Jewish mentality. You see that? You sh we should, because that's by and large a lot of our focus as well. The average sermon in the average church in the average Sunday school is what do we need to do to please God? How do we need to change our lives? What can we do to make our marriages better? What can we do to better rear our children? How can we live lives that bring glory to God by what we do? Right? It's a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not in any way throwing any rocks at it. I applaud it. It's a critical question. It was a Jewish mentality. The Greek mentality was very different. The Greek mentality was what sense can we make out of our lives and our bodies? I mean, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, what, what, what is this stuff we are anyway? I mean, is this for real? Is this a really bad dream? Is this a really good dream? How do I even know y'all are there? I might just be dreaming. This is a pretty good dream so far. You might be sitting there saying, how do I know he's there? This is a horrible dream. <laughs> you know? What, what, what is real? Where were we before we were born? See, they didn't grow up with the creation mentality of the Jews. Ah, God made us. That's good enough for me. You know, they grow up thinking, I wonder where we were before we were born. I wonder where we are right now. I wonder where we're going. I wonder why it is things work the way they work. Is there fate? Is there guiding force? Does anybody really believe all of those different gods and all those different stories? No, probably not. But we'll worship them anyway because we get really good parties out of it. That's the Greek mentality. Look at it this way. Jews. Jewish Christians now. Kick it up a notch. Trust in Jesus and live right and please God. That's a Jewish approach to church. That's what you see in the... That's what Paul's writing about. That's what a lot of scripture is. Trust in Jesus... And live right. Okay? You've ever heard that? Okay. But then the Gentiles come in, the Jews, and they got questions like, okay, how does this Jesus thing work anyway? Because if Adam sinned, you know, we'll read Romans and read what Paul says about Adam and the first Adam. And so you get Irenaeus of Lyon that we studied about when he was writing against the Gnostic heresies. Remember that? He says, um, he says okay, now look. If our bodies are descended from Adam, then when Adam sinned, he's clearly messed up all of our bodies. And so our physical flesh and blood's bad too. Now God's got to redeem us, and we don't believe God redeems just the spirits. Heaven's not just a spiritually realm. Uh, when Jesus came back, he's flesh and blood. Uh, flesh and blood, flesh and blood. So they think, okay, how does God redeem physical man? Well, it must be when Jesus came, that must be why he had to come as an infant. 
See, and they're starting to think this stuff through. Jesus had to come as an infant because from the very moment of conception, which readily was admitted, it was always a virgin birth. It's the Holy Spirit and Mary's egg. But from the moment of conception, Jesus is flesh and blood, perfect, so that he can be a brand new generation, a brand new race. He's the brand new Adam. He's got flesh and blood that's never known sin. That becomes why it's so important in taking communion to see it as the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. So it's perfect and it starts to permeate us. And we get some of that when we take it. See, this is what's going to be developing through the church through the centuries. But it starts out with these, these Greek questions. Okay. Now, if we go back here and we look at Alexandria down here, Alexandria, Egypt. That was where we talked about Origen and his scriptural interpretations. We're coming back to him. Just look at the difference between Alexandria, Egypt at the mouth of the Nile and Carthage, which is over here in modern Tunisia. Just about, I think, 15 miles or so the ruins are from Tunis. Okay. You look at, and, and that's just a couple hundred miles. That's not real far. But the line that divides is a huge line between Carthage and Alexandria. It's a huge line. And it'll become even huger in the history of the church. Ultimately, this is going to be the line that divides the Greek Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox because it includes Russia, Greece, the Eastern Orthodox, and the Roman Church is that line. Okay? Tell them I'll be throwing about 10 minutes. And uh, Clement... And Origen are the two guys on the, the liberal side of this line. <laughs> Tertullian and Cyprian are the two guys on the conservative side of this line. And what they did was very interesting. They had quite a, there was, there was a big divide between them and a big fuss that never totally heals. Clement wore the philosopher's robes. You'll recall Clement of Alexandria was a philosopher who became a Christian later in life. But he was very concerned with integrating the philosophy of his day with his faith. He wanted to see how to make sense out of his Plato and his Aristotle, his Socrates, and how to integrate it with his, uh, with his, with his religion. In modern parlance, he would be someone who wants to try and understand how to take different cultures, different ideas, different faiths and religions, and try to make sense of them within the Christian circle. Um, he say all truth is God's truth. It doesn't matter where you find it. If you find truth in philosophy, it's God's truth. He would say, knowledge and contemplation are the foreground of the spiritual life. You want to know the foundation of being truly spiritual? His mentality wasn't just live right before God. Oh, don't get me wrong. He wasn't a guy who was given to lasciviousness. That was important to him. But he says, contemplation, knowledge, thinking, trying to understand the depths and the riches and the mysteries of Jesus and God. That's the foreground. That's the basic palette of the spiritual life. Um, Origen, his uh, student, uh, nicknamed Man of Steel. That's the nickname I want. Hey, Mark Lanier, Man of Steel. I think it beats the Texas Hammer, you know? Um, <laughs> Jim Adler, Texas Hammer, Mark Lanier, Man of Steel. Uh, Se habla Espanol. 
Um, <laughs> concerned with integrating philosophy and faith, he was too. He says it's like this. You go back to the Old Testament. You know, the, the Jews got to take the spoils of the Egyptians. That's what we Christians get to do. We can go mining in the fields of, of all the religions and thought systems and we can, can, can take what we want that is true and good and right and pure and lovely. Okay? Now, that's that side. This side, Tertullian, the trial lawyer. He says, this is his famous quote, what's Athens got to do with Jerusalem? You know, where do you get off taking all this philosophy stuff? This Bible comes from Jerusalem. Our faith comes from Jews and God's interaction with the Jews. And you take your philosophy and send it back to Athens. He was, he was very practical. He was a nuts and bolts guy. I want the nuts and the bolts. I want it laid out. I'm real into pragmatic programs. He's the kind of guy that would have five-step programs for everything. But it would be a scripture behind each one. Okay? He's intellectual. Don't get me wrong. This was no mamby-pamby, oh gee, I don't want to think about anything. He was very intellectual, but it was very pragmatic. Does that make sense? You see the difference? Um, all right. His Cyprian, next. His, uh, wasn't his student, but Cyprian uh, read a lot of Tertullian, called him his master, uh, though they didn't actually have a relationship. Um, Cyprian was very concerned with the same thing. His big concern was, was church life, daily life. How does church structure work together? He's going to be one of the guys that we're going to deal with when we look at how the Catholic church really got itself put together because he's responsible for a lot of it. Okay. He writes it, although it's interesting he had a big fight with the Pope. Cyprian was bishop here at Carthage, and uh, Pope Stephen, who most people recognize as the first pope to take the label pope at least, um, uh, 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 is uh, the bishop at Rome. And Stephen said the bishop at Rome takes preeminence over all of the bishops. And uh, uh, Cyprian said, yeah, over my dead body. And they had a big fight about it, and then they both died before it got resolved, so uh, nobody won. Um, what do we make of all of this? That's also known as points for home, so you can rest easy. One, our salvation's based on who we know. It's not based on what we know. Let me say that again. Our salvation's based on who we know, not what we know. I love the fact that the preacher said today that he used to think universalists all went to hell. I'm glad he said that because if he said today he believes universalists all go to hell, I'd say... Boy, that's kind of scary. As it is, I can say, I agree, that's a good point. I used to think the same thing. He said, I used to think that people who didn't believe in inerrancy were going to hell. And I can say, yeah, I used to think the same thing. But I'm here to tell you that you're not going to heaven and hell based upon your what you know. You're going to heaven and hell based on who you know. Okay? Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, not what. It doesn't say, I know what I've believed and I'm persuaded it's able to keep what I've committed to it for that day. He says, I know whom I've believed. I'm persuaded that he, Jesus, is able to keep that I've committed to him, Jesus, against that day. Um, second point, are beliefs beyond the atonement irrelevant? Does that mean all we have to do is believe in Jesus and what we believe after that's irrelevant? If I want to believe in uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, great. If I don't, that's fine. If I want to believe everybody goes to heaven eventually, 
great. If I want to believe, no, just maybe one out of 20, that's fine. I mean, are the beliefs irrelevant? Absolutely not. The beliefs are still relevant because your doctrine, what you believe, breeds your actions. How you live is based on what you believe, whether you think it or not. I can't tell you how many times I've heard teenagers tell me, uh, it doesn't matter you know, what I think or what, uh, you know, who I hang around with or da-da-da-da-da, because I am who I am and I know what's right and I'm going to do what's right. I just sit there and laugh and think, I guess I thought that too. But what you believe and who you are and who you hang around with affects what you do. Jesus said it this way. He says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Now you've heard that scripture, but we always just talk about it meaning the way or the truth. But let me tell you about the life. Jesus is saying that the way, Jesus being the way to God, Jesus being the truth, the real answer, the unvarnished 100% reality is equally part of our life and how we live. If you see, if Jesus is your way, if Jesus is your truth, then Jesus will be your life. But if Jesus isn't your way, and Jesus isn't your truth, He's not going to be your life. If Jesus is your way, but He's not your truth, He's not going to be your life. And He's come to be all. So um, your doctrine and your beliefs are important, and it's important to you. Is there no use of philosophy? Can we just say, oh, I hate philosophy. Well, I want to tell you something. Different strokes for different folks. I had somebody say to me the other day, hey, oh no, we were talking with Dale Hearn. Dale Hearn said, you know, I'm a guy who just needs to be told to do something. Don't ever ask me to sign up. You ask me to sign up, I don't sign up. I just don't like to sign up. I like to be told, Dale, we need you to do this. Dale, be a greeter. You tell me that, I'll be a greeter. But you ask me to sign the book as it goes by, I ain't going to sign the book. I don't like to sign up for things. <laughs> so my, <laughs> as we talked it around, we decided, you know, there's the Dale Hearns of the world who want to be told what to do and don't want to sign up for it and are glad to do it because he has such a wonderful servant's heart and really wants to minister right. But then there's another group of people in the world who don't like to be told at all what to do. And your best chance of getting them to do anything is to ask them to sign up. Because they'll volunteer. I've got five children. I see distinctions between them. I have one daughter who you got to say, would you please do this? Oh, I'd just be delighted to. I've got another daughter. Would you please do this? Why are you making me do that? If I wanted to do it, wouldn't I volunteer? <laughs> see somebody laughing who knows which daughter it is. Uh, <laughs> I got to tell you, Paul says, to the Jews, I become like a Jew. Why? To win the Jews. To the Gentiles, I become like a Gentile. Why? To win the Gentiles. To the weak, I become weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all men, so by all possible means I might save some. There are some people who will not come to knowledge of Jesus Christ unless they have some intellectual and philosophical questions answered. And it's appropriate to answer those, and we have answers. There are some people who couldn't give a whit about that who just say, I need something real in my life, just give it to me now, please. We have answers for that. Because Jesus meets all of these needs. So let's don't live in our box and think everybody has to think the way we do. Jesus came for everybody. Final point. All truth is God's truth. 
but we use Scripture to measure and confirm it. I'm, I'm, I'm cynical about any sermons and lessons that don't have Scripture as a base. Doesn't mean they can't be right. I've heard some wonderful ones where the guy doesn't use Scripture, and it's scripturally based. All truth is God's truth. But we use Scripture to measure and confirm. Does that make sense? I'm out of time. I'm sorry I've gone over. Uh, Let's pray quickly, please. Lord, in just a quick way, I do ask you to take a moment and just bless everyone in here. I pray that the lessons that you teach us through this class will, will burn their way into our hearts and minds and change who we are and how we act and how we love each other. I pray that through Jesus. Amen.